So we need to believe more and more deeply that our God is different. Uh, the God of Jesus Christ is never a God who's going to take vengeance. Is never a God of, of this such, um, such crude retribution. And the whole of the history of salvation, the whole of the Bible, is a testimony to it. God took people where they were, so at the point in which they believed that if you do wrong, you're going to be punished. If you are right, you're going to be uh, rewarded. And takes them progressively to Jesus with the message that whatever you do, whatever you are, I am with you. The only thing I want is uh, you to be with me. And there is no length I'm not prepared to go to rescue you and to bring you with me. I walk through desert plains Here on the open range Feel like a renegade Looking to run away Here in the wilderness I'm coming face to face With all that I have done Hello you beautiful, beautiful people. I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that it's March. I'm glad that it's Lent. At least I think by the time this episode releases, it will be Lent. I am Seth, your host. So excited for the conversation today. One of my favorite things on this show is when I engage with thinkers and voices that are way outside of my normal sphere of influence. And today's guest is that. So I spoke with Luigi Gioia, who is a lecturer of systematic theology. He currently is at the University of Cambridge. He is so fun to talk to. And so we, and and I'm glad that you get to hear it. When I got Luigi's book, I didn't really know what to expect. And you'll hear this as the conversation unfolds here in a few minutes. I had no idea that I needed to read what I was reading at the time that it was sent to me. And that is one of the most fascinating aspects of this show. And I tell people often in real life, doing this show is extremely helpful for me because it's cathartic and it's tough, but it is, uh, doing this show is, is changing me in ways that I was unexpected. And this conversation is no different. So at the same time that uh, last week's episode with James P. Danaher was being read and interviewed, I was reading Luigi's book at the same time called Touched by God. And between just the knowledge and the interweaving of contemplative prayer the Gospel of John, the parables, epistemology, and truth, my world was like rocked. Like, I don't even understand how to explain it to you. And you'll hear me allude to that in the show, but I'm going to try to write it down, but I honestly don't know how to explain it. Before we get going on this episode, I wanted to just read you one of the parts of the books that I like the most. Luigi quotes a theologian, El Meskin. And I love what he says on prayer. And so before we dive into this, I'd like to read that to you. And so he says that prayer is the expression of a deep love between you and God. God's love attracts your heart to prayer and to his presence. And your love consists in offering to God the same love. Initially, the manifestation of love in prayer is shy. Maturity in prayer coincides with the maturity of love. And so as we begin Lent, listen to this conversation on prayer. Let's go.
Luigi Gioia, I am thankful that you're on the show. I am excited to talk with you. I was thrilled when um, another name that I struggle to pronounce emailed me about about your book. I can't. Rem- I don't even remember how to say her name, but um, yes. I was excited to get it, excited to read it. And honestly, it was. If I'm honest with you, Luigi, it it was what I needed to read at the time that I was reading it. So I read yours with another one at the same time about truth and prayer and how yes. the words matter. And so the two just mixed together well. And so thank you for writing it and thanks for coming on to the show. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much so, for having me. Uh, yeah. So a lot of my audience is either in New Zealand, the United States, or Canada. There's a small subset there in the UK. And I know that I believe you're in the UK now. I correct? am in the UK. Yes, so, I'm in Cambridge right now, in my college. There we go. <laughs> uh, I wanted to just briefly set the stage so that those that are listening as they hear you talk, they'll kind of know where you're coming from. And so kind of what is your upbringing, you know, theologically and personally that has made you the follower of Christ that you are today? Well, I grew up in the south of Italy um, in a family where my mother uh, is deeply religious uh, and my father, as I often say, was and still is the most anti-clerical person I've ever met in my life. (laughs) Uh, I was very religious when I was a child, very religious, very practicing when I was a child. So I would go to church quite often, but it was not a personal faith. And I, um, I kind of had a major experience of conversion when I was uh, 16, um, at a period of my life where I was rather under the influence of my father. So I was, I'd become very anti-clerical, I'd reacted against the church, um, and I was trying to read and find arguments against Christianity. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways in which I decided to do it was by reading the Gospels, reading Scripture, and trying to find in Scripture arguments against Christianity. Um, And that uh, was really the greatest mistake of my life, depending on how you see it, because I soon um, changed my approach to Scripture. So I was reading it as as a as a kind of a story or um, a collection of myths, and I was trying to find um, uh, flaws or um, problems in it. And as I was reading it, it was the first time I was reading it, you know, Gospels from beginning to end, um, and seeing the continuity, seeing the story, I became first very interested, then uh, moved, uh, and then somehow... I felt there was someone speaking to me through these words. It was not just me reading about something, but a feeling that someone was trying to tell to me something through these uh, texts. And um, I still to this day cannot describe exactly what happened, but I know that in the course of that week or 10 days in which I every day I would spend some time uh, reading scripture and becoming more and more engrossed in this um, reading, I started to pray. I started to talk to God. And by the end of that period, I, I can say that I believed I had come to faith. So it was a very personal um, journey that led me straight away to want to give my life to God um, in the way available at the time in the south of Italy, which was to join um, the Catholic Church as a um, as a 
as a monk, there was a, a small Benedictine community in the south of Italy. Uh, I started to go to this community to have small retreats, to have times of prayer, to talk to people, to monks there. Um, and within a year, so when I was um, 18, I decided to join monastic life. And that led me to a long journey where I was uh, alternatively in Tuscany for three years, then in France for 19 years. And then I was again in Rome for another 10 years, um, in, uh, seven years, sorry, in different um, monastic uh, settings. Um, and in the meantime, surprisingly, I mean, I didn't expect that, but um, after 10 years of monastic life, my superiors decided to send me to Oxford to do my theological studies. Mm-hmm. So I was exposed to a lot of Catholic kind of very conservative um, um, doctrine, especially reading a lot of Thomas Aquinas, who is the um, uh, is really the, the major thinker of conservative Catholicism. Then uh, in, in Oxford, I was I worked a lot with people Anglicans um, there who introduced me to Saint Augustine in particular. Mm-hmm. So Ron Williams has been one of the most influential figures in my life. Uh, then I read a lot of Calvard. Uh, which meant I was exposed to Calvinism, uh-huh. or to a form of Calvinism through this. And then I became friend with uh, evangelicals, evangelical Anglicans, who kept inviting me to their meetings and to their gatherings um, because they were very interested in Catholic teaching, Catholic spirituality. And just to add another element uh, to this kind of um, um, you know, idea about where I come from, um, after that, uh, some 10 years ago, I was called to go to Rome uh, to teach in one of the so-called pontifical universities. So are the, universi- the universities acknowledged by the Vatican as teaching in the name of the church. And I was training um, people or teaching to people uh, from all over the world, from over 90 countries. Mm. And I was teaching Trinity, Christology, um, anthropology and spirituality, theology of history, but by and large, I was always interested in the spiritual aspects of theology. This has been my my teaching. Um, and then three years ago, I was invited as visiting scholar here in Cambridge uh, by, thanks to Ron Williams, who um, has, has become a friend in the meantime. And, uh, and since then, you know, after that, they asked me to stay. So I, I'm still here at the moment. <laughs> you asked me before we started recording. Yes. What? you know, what denomination I called home, and I gave a very vague but honest answer. And so yes. I hear a lot of changes throughout at least the knowledge that's been poured into your head. And so yes. I'd, I'd ask you the same question. So what yes. what form of, I guess, Christianity do you find that, that fits the best for you? Well, I mean, an Italian is a Catholic, is a Roman Catholic. Um, you're just, you know, as you are Italian, you're Roman it. Catholic. You're born into it, exactly. Uh, but this gives you a great freedom. So it's not um, as identitarian. Um, the, the Italian form of Catholicism is not as identitarian as the one I discovered in UK, for instance, or in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've always found very difficult to identify myself in opposition to I say, well, that I'm Catholic means I'm not Protestant or I'm not Baptist or I'm not Anglican. On the contrary, uh, I've been brought up into a form of Catholicism, which really etymologically is really trying embracing, all embracing. Mm-hmm. And honestly and sincerely interested, uh, when I went to Oxford for the first time in my life, and it was in my 30s, I started to meet uh, Anglicans, evangelicals, um, uh, Methodists, 
And I was fascinated. I started to go to the to the services. On Sunday, I would go to three different places. I would go to a Catholic mass. I would go to a hard evangelical kind of uh, um, almost Calvinist uh, mm-hmm. kind of uh, service where the preaching was very good, but quite hard. And then I would go to a charismatic, in the evening, a charismatic evangelical kind of... Day. Yeah, just because I wanted to be exposed to these different... Uh, denominations, not so much or not only from the viewpoint of doctrine, but from the viewpoint of spirituality. I really wanted to understand how they relate to God, how they understand the way God acts in their lives, um, how they um, um, uh, understand scripture. Um, And I realized that the best way to do this is not so much by reading books uh, about them, about different Christian denominations, but by become friends and by praying with and by sharing religious kind of um, experiences with people from across the different denominations. And, and this has been fascinating because when you pray with someone in a friendly context, you cannot judge him. Uh, and you are much more receptive to everything which is positive in his or her experience. I'm going to borrow, because you're a professional, like you actually speak for a living, you know, and you lecture for a living. So I'm going to borrow that segue that was beautiful um, into, into prayer. So, um, and, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm man enough to know when you did it better than me. Um, so you, you've written a book that I... I want, to ask, I want to ask you to for that. I want to ask you a copyright for that. I mean, you're, you're free to use it. Yeah. The way that you phrase spirituality and the way that the different denominations do it, the way that the different forms of Christianity do it, has really been a big part of my Christianity over the last few years, mostly because I read a book that made me question the way that I pray, and then I read another book that was a different view on prayer, and then I read another book on contemplation, and then I spoke to, you know, uh, a Christian that that embraces mysticism um, in, in a more cosmic type of way, and we talked about prayer and intentionality and being present and like eye gazing. And either way, I'm always uncomfortable with it, but I find a lot of growth and that uncomfortability. And so when I read your book, which is relatively short, um, yes, although it took me longer than I expected to read a short book, because I would read a few pages mm-hmm. and then you would quote theologians that I'm not familiar with, like some of the names that you quote and some of the things that as you were reading, you know, impacted you. I'm like, have I never heard this? I was cheated out of something because I've never read this. And I wonder... Okay. where I would be today had I had I had something like right. this years ago. Um, so kind of, why did you write Touched by God? Like, what's kind of the genesis of that, and what are you trying to do? Really, it is the kind of an urge that came from inside me, really. I've been blessed, I have to say, by um, a desire or which at some points in my life... Uh, was bordering on obsession uh, about praying, about um, somehow welcoming God's presence in my life, uh, acknowledging it. And um, and I remember very early, at the moment of my conversion, um, starting to pray and yet questioning my prayer. But questioning not judgmentally, not... not um, anxiously, but just saying to myself, okay, um, it's very important in prayer that I should talk to God. And I started to do it straight away. But I was wondering, do I have to do all the talk? How is God actually talking to me? Uh, How and when am I listening to him? And I was 
uh, reading um, as much as I could on this topic. I was questioning people. And this has been a long journey, a very long journey. I remember, I mean, it's, it's taken me years and years and years to find uh, answers that really, um, I wouldn't say satisfied me, because to this day, I'm not still not satisfied. I'm still kind of, and it would be really a um, bad sign if I felt, oh, I've reached the point in prayer mm-hmm. where I don't have to question myself or question prayer anymore or read more. But it is true that after a number of years and reading a number of authors and, and carrying on praying and growing, I, I hope, in my life of prayer, I found that there was something in my experience that spoke to other people. So particularly in the past, well, starting already some 20 years ago in the monastery where I was in France, we had um, uh, many young people who came for day retreats. So they would come in the morning, stay until the evening, uh, and they would share parts of our lives and at the same time, we would give to them small teachings on, on Christianity. And particularly, I was asked um, to give a teaching on prayer. So I, I really, I can say that I've, I've been speaking to prayer to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of young people. And this has been a very good school for me. It has forced me to hone, really, the way in which I can communicate this um, uh, experience, which is so central to my life. And then in the past 10 years, I've been invited to preach uh, what we call retreat in Catholicism, kind of motivational, give motivational talks to Christians all over the world, um, Philippines, Korea, China, Australia, Canada, uh, name it, in, in the United States as well. And, um, and I realized that each time I was talking about prayer, even if I had the feeling that what I was talking about was quite simple, really, uh, it spoke to people. Uh, people really said to me that this helped them. And so there you have a sense of responsibility. So you feel, well, probably if I've been so almost obsessed by prayer all of my life is because God wanted me to go a bit deeper into this experience so I could share it with other people and help other people with it. And this this really is the fundamental kind of um, uh, reason behind uh, behind really both books, Say to God and Touched by God. I find talking about prayer is, as you said a minute ago, simple, but it's also deceptively hard to do it. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? To say I'm going to go pray is fine, but then to come away feeling like I've connected with God, I find frustrating often yes where i leave and i'm like man that was i don't know if that was a waste of my time or not and it's probably yes. not and in hindsight it usually never is but at the moment i often find myself frustrated by how hard something so simple should be like i feel like it should be two plus two equals four and that's probably yes. the logical part of my brain being like just input these into the prayer bucket and these results will be yielded and yes. that is never the case and you talk well on that on you you have a, a, a few chapters where you talk on feeling and silence and how we often pray and we don't feel anything. And, and so we yes. come away longing. And can you break that apart again? Like, what do I do with that feeling when I pray and I spend a week praying about something and, and, I, and I feel nothing? I, I feel distant. The experience of what we can call the absence of God or um, not feeling anything is... It's indeed one of the main obstacles to, to life of prayer. I, I acknowledge that. And it is something that in one way or the other comes and goes. Um, so you never reach a point in life of prayer where 
you sail through it, always motivated, always enthusiastic, especially when you lead a very busy life, which is, has happened to me in the past few years since I've been especially here in Cambridge. But even when I was in Rome, I remember that I had my time of prayer every day, but each time it was so difficult to, to, to stop doing what I was doing, just to go, I mean, um, to, to take time for prayer. And I remember at the beginning of uh, saying to myself, this is such a waste of time. This is such a waste mm. of time. And yet, um, it was not just that I wanted to do it. Uh, there was something that I would feel I was missing in my life if I was not praying, which was not exactly a feeling I felt as I was praying. So sometimes as I was praying, it might be very dry uh, it may be me saying things to God and me praying for other people or, or me uh, just also, I mean, as I try to describe my last book, um, trying to stay silent in God's presence. And yet at the end of it, feeling, um, as you described, not, not special, not, nothing special. Um, and yet I would see that when I did it, my life had a sense of uh, fullness which I missed immediately if I missed these times of prayer, not once or twice, but, you know, over, over a few days. So when I talk about the peace and the joy that comes from prayer, I'm describing really a range of feelings. So there is really a sense of, uh, of, of joy that can fill us, fill our hearts as we are praying. There is really consolation that we can receive as we are praying. And you know, Jesus says, I've come to give you my joy. And if he has promised this to us, it's because he wants to give this to us. But there is also a much more, much more kind of subtle and pervasive uh, sense of fulfillment and peace and joy, almost unnoticeable, that fills our lives that we often take for granted as Christians, but which we, that we miss immediately if we stop caring about cultivating our relation with God. And this is also something that we notice, the difference that makes praying, whether we feel it something or not, whether we feel something or not as we pray, this is something that we notice when we talk to people who really have no belief and and feel alone in their lives, in the trials of their lives. To me, whenever this happens, I feel that, I feel what huge difference makes for me, whether I feel anything or not, to know that I'm not alone, that God is with me. And this gives me a peace which might not be always um, felt, but certainly makes my life different. Thinking about prayer, I was thinking about our conversation last night, or I was thinking about our conversation for today, last night. Yes. And as I'm tucking my daughters into bed, and I'm thinking of all of the news today, specifically out of the Catholic Church, but also out of the Baptist Church, and all of these things of a touching, a physical embrace, unwarranted and unwanted. And um, I'm worried that to have a concept of praying in a way that we can touch God is tainted in a way because of the way that touch has been abused physically. And so I'm, I'm, I'm curious how you would either break apart the, the difference between physical touch and a spiritual touch, or if they even can be broken apart. And I'm not even sure that I'm asking that the right way, but I'm hoping that you're hearing what I'm understanding, because I'm trying to 
trying to be able to relate. Everything that I talk about on this show, I always try to relate back down to my children. And I struggled to be able to, as I thought last night, communicate that well in a way of protect yourself against unwanted touching. Here's how we physically know what we want. Here's how we emotionally know what's safe and wholesome and fruitful. Yes, I mean, this is um, something that obviously you can imagine uh, I've uh, been asked already several times. And indeed, when I decided to call this book Touched by God, some of my friends have started to make jokes about it, yeah. you know, and <laughs> as you can imagine, you know, Catholic well, I definitely, Catholic. I definitely don't want to joke about it because that is a very serious topic. It's very serious. <laughs> yeah, it is. That, that is this is Absolutely. not the Super Bowl. I don't want to be flipping yes. with it. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, my... My answer to this would be that um, many times, many, many times in my life, I had to realize, and this has been really um, something that has, has been very hard, that in situations where I was really trying to help someone and someone I deeply loved, I would hurt this person. It could be a friend, it could be a, uh, a person with whom I, a member of my family, I don't have children, so I can't talk about children, but I know that uh, a lot of parents, without wanting it, and really out of love for their children, end up hurting them in one way or the other. And this is a very painful experience, because um, how is it possible that with the best intentions, and when you're really trying to love someone, you end up uh, hurting him or her? The answer to this is that human love is wounded and that it is unavoidable that when we love, we also hurt people. And jokingly, but seriously at the same time, I say often that there is only one way we uh, can be sure of never hurting anyone, which is not loving anyone. Hmm. If you love anyone, you will never hurt anyone. But if you accept to love and to be loved, you accept the possibility of hurting and being hurt. And thank God we have forgiveness. This is why forgiveness is such a, a fundamental element in, 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 in love. Um, there is no possibility of love in this life, in this earth, without forgiveness. Um, so just in the same way, just as we cannot give up love just because with love comes hurt, just in the same way, we cannot give up talking about touching and the importance of touching uh, in our lives just because it is so abused and abused precisely by the people who should be trustworthy, who should be able to to give uh, protection and advice um, to people who are in situations of vulnerability and so on and so forth. Touching is the essential component of identity. We would not become the people we are unless we uh, had been touched by our parents in the most formative years of our lives. Uh, we would not be able to talk. We would not be able to relate. We would not be able to feel emotions at all had we not been touched in the right way in the first years of our existence. As we grow, we become more and more selective and less and less dependent on physical touch. So we, we still have that level of intimacy with you know, our partner or our children uh, or some very, very good friends in certain situations. But touching remains just as important for us in a different way, to the point that we use the word touched or being touched most of the time, not physically, but metaphoric, metaphorically. So we say, this word touched me, this story touched me, this example touched me. 
And I also found out, and this was quite surprising for me, that uh, in neuroscience, apparently, metaphors of touch can awake the same part of brain which is involved in physical touch. So it is so similar being mm. touched emotionally or metaphorically to being touched physically that the same part of brain is involved in this operation. So when it comes to God and our relationship with God, there is something very similar to what happens in our daily lives. Just as in our daily lives, the thing that becomes more formative or, or keep kind of motivating and, and, and helping us are, is being touched by this word, by this podcast, by this uh, news, by this uh, declaration from a friend, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So in relationship with God, the way in which God reaches us and touches us is through his word, through scripture, through the stories he tells us. This is why scripture is not made up with, it's not a treatise, it's not something, it's not so much a book where we find explanations, but it's a book where we find stories. And very simple stories, very, uh, very down to earth. Uh, Jesus talks through parables. Uh, Jesus does things so that uh, by reading it, we, or rather through these words, through the scripture, God tries to convey to us the extent to which we are important for him, the extent to which he loves us, the extent to which he wants uh, to be part of our lives. And especially um, that which is, to me, the absolute core of the uh, biblical message is that he is with us mm. and he cannot be other than being with us. Mm. This is really his name. And he is a God who uh, longs for speaking to us, for talking to us. And is a God whose longing is to have an impact in our lives and to be in a covenantal relationship with us. So in this sense, touching is just essential, is absolutely fundamental. Now it is misused, abused. Mm -hmm. uh, it is also the place where we are most hurt. And it is also the place where, unfortunately, Christians, uh, Catholics, but you know, unfortunately, as you, as you are mm -hmm. noticing, I was aware of this fact that, you know, Baptists as well uh, have, have, you know, for a variety of reasons, very complex reasons, have misused it. Have, yeah. um, uh, but at the same time, just as with love and hurt, you know, just because these realities can be misused, or rather I would say this, uh, the extent to which the, the, they can be misused and can hurt people is, is uh, directly proportional also to the way in which they can have a positive impact on people's lives and if they're used properly. And it is necessary to reflect and to talk about and to learn how we can uh, use them properly. Tell me are you with me now? Even in my ups and downs I've been calling out It's you and me Is it you and me? Yeah. Tell me are you listening? I hate on every word you say Say someone's listening and they hear that and I will say, Luigi, that's that's beautiful. And I agree that there is a direct tension with, and I only say this because as a father, my son and I are almost identical in every way. And I'm always on a razor's edge of being in a loving manner or in a non-loving manner. And it really, much more different than my wife or my daughter's, like just a razor's edge because it's like looking at a mirror. And yes. I'm not usually prepared for that. And I don't mean a mirror physically. He does look like me. I mean, he's my son, but just emotionally, logically, the way that he processes things and 
I've never realized how sensitive I was until I saw how sensitive I am. And I'm not saying yes. that right, but that's the best way I'm going to say it. Say as a child, I didn't have a quote unquote really loving relate, and I'm not saying that this is the case for me. And so for yes. me, touch is something that I recoil from. Emotional yes. touch, physical touch. If I'm listening to a song on the radio and it begins to touch a part of me that I'm not comfortable with, I just turn it off. Yes. And, and I'm like, you know, I, I feel called to follow Christ. I want to pray. I want to do so well. I hear Luigi saying that as I do so, there's going to be touching happening here, either emotionally, spiritually, and neurosciencely from what, that's not a word, in my brain, from what I'm hearing you say, and I'll have to find that research, that that's going to invict almost a a physical response from an emotional impulse and 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 a brain impulse. And so if I'm not equipped to handle that well as a Christian, what can I do? Like, how do I plug myself in safely and intentionally so that I can continue to practice prayer and begin to work through that outside of just throwing out the baby with the bathwater and much like that song on the radio that I didn't want to be touched by, just turn the power yes. off and just disconnect. Yes. Well, I think I, um, I don't want to be naive nor uh, absolute about it. I know for a fact that I know people who stay away from Christianity, stay away from, um, just as they stay away from many other things because they've been hurt, uh, because the message has come across to them in a way that has uh, led them to feel kind of uh, judged, excluded, uh, or considered unworthy to be loved. And it is true that this might be an obstacle they will never overcome in their lives. And just in the same way, if someone has had a traumatic experience of in his or her relationship with um, his or her father, will struggle to be told that when you pray, you should say, our father. So there is no magic kind of solution to this problem. The only thing I can say is, A, that I also know um, and I remember this case very well. This woman many years ago uh, from Asia who had had this very difficult relationship with his fa- her father and who came after teaching on prayer and on the Lord's Prayer came to say to see me and said, you know, you, you have no idea how hurtful it is to hear that, you know, the way we should pray is our father. And, you know, I apologized to her for not being sensitive to this and the conversation didn't end very well. And yet the same woman, five years afterwards, I met her again, and she said to me, you know, as it happens, I really tried. And the experience of a father with father, God being a father, mm-hmm. um, has somehow healed me. And I found consolation in it. And this has led even me to reconcile myself with my earthly father before he died. So, I mean, these things can happen. On the other hand, it is true that in Scripture, God presents himself as father, but also as brother and as friend and even as mother, someone who walks with us. And in all these cases, it is quite clear that we are dealing with images because God is every of each one of these things and is beyond any of them. And he does that precisely because he wants us to have at our disposal an array of, of images that can help us to, to find ways in which we can let him closer, come closer to us. But it is also true that some people will never be able to do this, and not because of their faults, but just because they, they've been too hurt uh, in their lives. 
And there, I really feel a sense of almost awe and deep kind of respect for the way in which God, I believe, remains present in the lives of people who seem to be completely impervious to his action or to his presence, to his word. To me, one of the core beliefs or the core sentences of Scripture is God wants everyone to be saved. And if this is true, and I believe it is true, I also believe that God has his ways of acting and being present in the life or in lives of everyone. And I don't need anyone to be openly a believer or to welcome you know, scripture or to go to church. I don't need anything of this to believe that God is acting in, in people's lives. And I have to say that the thing that strikes me most when I talk to people, even people in, in great pain, in great intensely tragic lives, is the extent to which my faith allows me to believe, well, God is there, even if you don't know it. I wish you would know it, because it would, it would, this would bring you great consolation. But I know that God is present in your life anyway. Yeah. And because where there is pain and suffering, where, there God is. Yeah. In the end, there's going to be some ways in which this is going to be valid in the lives of everyone. I believe it even if I don't know how. This belongs to God's ways. I want to build off of where you were going there with, with pain and, and when you're praying and how you deal with that. So you have a chapter and I referenced it before we started talking, about the inner nagging. And in it, you touch on something that I hear a lot, especially over here, and I don't want to call out you know, that name it, claim it kind of Christianity of if you have pain, if you have strife and struggles, you're just doing, you're just doing church wrong. Like You're not being a good Christian. You're doing it yes. wrong. And so you quote a sentence in Psalm 119 where it says, you know, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. Yes. And you kind of walk through that a bit. And then the part that got me is you say, this travesty of Christian faith keeps such a stronghold on us because it is the core of the pagan sense of sacred that has plagued mankind ever since the first religious feeling dawned in the conscience of our early ancestors. And so I'd like you to rip that apart a bit because I've never heard that, especially the part where you talk about the pagan sense of the sacred and how that relates to mankind. Like I've just never really thought about it that way. Yes. Can you rip yes. that apart a bit? But what we are talking about is guilt, really. And guilt is something that belongs to anthropologically to who we are, what we are. Uh, again, uh, because human love, human upbringing is wounded, and again, because the way our society works. The core is that as human beings, we have this sense that if evil happens to us, is because in one way or the other, we have done something wrong, or we have upset some divinity, mm -hmm. some spirit, some, some uh, being out there, and we have to do something to satisfy or to pacify this, this being if you want to establish um, the order. This is, this is anthropological. You find this in all religions, and one of the explanations, there are many explanations, of pagan sacrifices, mm -hmm. especially blood sacrifices, is this one. So in I've, I've read some, some anthropological kind of studies of um, blood sacrifice in African kind of um, cultures, where blood is used as a token, um, is the only way, how do I 
kind of get in touch or reach uh, a being I cannot see, a presence which is out there and can hurt me, uh, other than by giving them something that that can go from this uh, world to that world. And blood is one of the ways, is, is uh, I give some life to them, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. This is why I talked, the, I, I call about the, the pagan sense of sacred. To every human being comes with this sense of, of a, a world inhabited by forces we cannot control. And by the fact that if something happens to us, it must be because we've upset one of these forces and it is taking vengeance on us. Now, my, I think that my understanding of Christianity is that it cuts through this pagan understanding or this pagan kind of spontaneous way we have to relate to reality. And evil in particular, or all the bad things that happen to us, are left to their mystery. So there is no explanation for evil. There is no exp- no reason for evil. If there was a reason, it, it, will not, it will not be evil. Mm-hmm. Evil, by definition, is darkness, is absence of light. So, of course, there are things we, uh, you know, um, times in which we, we receive a damage because we do something wrong. So if I, if I throw a stone in, in the air and I stay there, I mean, the stone is going to fall back on me and I, I only have myself to blame for that. Uh, but no, if there's a tsunami, if I have an, an accident happens to me, if I got an illness, if, you know, in relationship there is something that goes wrong, this just belongs to the reality of our life on earth. Um, it's unavoidable. In the life of absolutely everyone, uh, there's going to be a number of these events, which, thank God, most of the time, uh, in most lives, don't happen all the time. You know, and some lives are particularly plagued by these sufferings or populations in some areas really are just particularly kind of exposed to it. But in most lives, this doesn't happen every day. But it happens. And when it happens, really, it is a challenge, a challenge to our faith. If we are Christian, I think it is a challenge to our faith not to project this pagan understanding or this pagan explanation onto God. And believe that, oh, if this is happening to me, it's because God is punishing me, or it's because I deserve it. Because even if I had done something wrong, the God we believe in is not a God who takes vengeance. He's not a God who, if you've done something wrong, you're going to pay for it. No, he is a God who, on the contrary, only wants us to live and wants to change us, not by punishing us, but by persuading us of the extent to which Choosing good is something that makes us happier, more fulfilled. And it will always try to attract us by persuasion, by love, and by coming to our help whenever we put ourselves in situations which are, which are wrong. The problem is that most forms of, of Christianity today have very little reflection on these issues. There is too little spirituality. This is what I call spirituality. We do not realize the extent to which the forms of Christianity we preach or or we live uh, are contaminated by this anthropological, fundamental, pagan 
uh, universal way of apprehending divinity and apprehending relation between um, the bad things that happen to us and belief in, in a divinity or God. And this is a field in which more than any other, we need conversion. We need constant conversion. To overcome guilt, we need a constant conversion. So we need to believe more and more deeply that our God is different. Uh, the God of Jesus Christ is never God who's going to take vengeance. Is never God of of this such um, such crude retribution. And the whole of the history of salvation, the whole of the Bible, is a testimony to it. God took people where they were. So at the point in which they believe that if you do wrong, you're going to be punished. If you are right, you're going to be uh, rewarded. And takes them progressively to Jesus with the message that whatever you do, whatever you are, I am with you. The only thing I want is uh, you to be with me. And there is no length I'm not prepared to go to rescue you and to bring you with me. Believing in it, which seems such a, why would not believe in such a beautiful uh, message, you would think, you would mm -hmm. say to me, well, precisely because we are wired in the wrong way, precisely because we are wired not to believe that. And this is why I think the, 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 the place where we need the greatest and the deepest conversion is precisely this one, yeah. the extent to which we are prepared to believe in God's love, in God's forgiveness and in God's willingness to be with us, uh, whatever whatever happens. So there's two things I want to ask you about as, as I, we must be coming close to the end of your time. Two things that I want to ask you about to rip apart. So you hold, two, and you referenced images of prayer earlier, and so you have two images that you contrast in the book. One is rest and restlessness, and the other is mindfulness and responsiveness. Yes. Um, but before you get into that, I often conflate mindfulness with contemplate with contemplative practices. And so what yes. is the differences between, you know, contemplative prayer and mindfulness, especially because mindfulness is all the rage everywhere. Everything, every book yes. in Barnes and Noble or wherever is yes. mindfulness. Yes. So yes. what's the distinction or the interplay between those two? And then how does that impact as we pray the images of, you know, rest and restlessness and mindfulness and responsiveness? Yes. Well, mindfulness, as I understand it, I'm not an expert on mindfulness by, by any stretch of imagination, but, but mindfulness is positive insofar as it helps people to slow down, to pay greater attention, to be less out there in the action and more and more capable of uh, staying somehow alone with oneself and not being afraid of silence, not being afraid of emptiness and discovering that what looks like emptiness at the beginning in reality is filled by a sense of well-being and can be quite helpful to help us to go back to our daily activities having some distance having some greater ability not to get completely uh, swallowed by what we do so essentially Mindfulness is paying attention. Mm -hmm. Mindfulness is not to be afraid of silence. Let's say this. Contemplation, as I understand it also, is the ability we acquire to see things uh, we do not normally see or to perceive things we do not normally perceive, and particularly uh, God's presence and action in our lives 
and God's voice in scripture and possibly God's presence within us. These things are related. So it is as if, and spiritual tradition is very good on this because it uses the image of spiritual senses. It says that just as we have eyes that allow us to see uh, and ears that allow us to hear in the physical realm, so progressively we acquire spiritual eyes or spiritual ears that help us to see and discern God's action and presence everywhere. Mm-hmm. And this is why, incidentally, I think uh, healing of blind people or healing of deaf people is so important in the gospel. It is clearly an image of what Revelation does, what God comes to do, uh, Christ comes to do um, uh, on earth, which is giving us eyes that enable us to see him or ears that enable us to hear him. The disciples of Emmaus say, uh, it is said about them in the Gospel of Luke, that their eyes were opened and Mm. they recognized him. So contemplation really is what happens when God opens our eyes and the eyes of our heart or our ears and enables us to recognize, as I was describing to you earlier, as I was telling you earlier, sometimes recognizing God's presence in history, in lives, is very difficult. But I think that contemplative outlook on reality is capable of seeing God where his presence is uh, not evident. In the same way, when I read scripture, a contemplative uh, attitude is that which uh, enables me to see not just information about God or about the people of Israel, but to hear a voice speaking me through these stories. And in prayer, it is really this ability which we acquire, and many, many spiritual authors talk about this, of discerning God's action and presence when I'm praying. So it's not just a feeling, uh, although feelings are part of it, but it is something that that is very real, even if it is difficult to describe. And it is a sense that I'm here, I might not see anything, I might not feel anything, but I know that I'm not alone. Mm. I know that God is with me, and I know that God loves me. And this knowledge becomes so pregnant, becomes so real, that this moment of prayer has an impact uh, impact on my life and does transform it. As your life is transformed, and, and I'd like to close with this, you have a chapter on identity. And so I want to give you the last word on that. So as we're doing contemplative prayer well, we're seeing aspects of God that we didn't see prior. You know, I live literally in the Blue Ridge Mountains here in central Virginia, and it's beautiful. And I have an easy avenue to just look out and see at least splendor that I didn't see yesterday, if I'll pay attention, or I can just get on the interstate and ride right past it. But also with my daughters and with my dog or with my job or other things as well. And so as we form a new identity with God and in God, what are we called to look like? Like if we were to bring it all home of the, not the end results, but what is the end goal? What do we need to be called to do as we, as we reform an identity in God? The element that strikes me most, and I think one of the signs that that impresses me most in people who I think are Christians in the right way, is uh, what I would call generosity. And when I 
talk about generosity, what I mean is not just, uh, which is al already something really very, very beautiful, the availability to give my time and to give my energies for other people and to be loving and to be patient, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Generosity, when I, when I mean generosity, generosity for me is, is I don't need to diminish other people to feel better. So as a Christian, I don't need to think that people who don't believe in God are worse than me because otherwise what would be the point of being a Christian? Or as a Catholic, I don't feel the need to, to, to think, oh, Protestants must be less good than I am because otherwise what would be the point of being a Catholic? Generosity, is, on the contrary, is rejoicing in how much God is present and beauty and truth is present everywhere. And sometimes even rejoicing in the fact that it's more present in other places or in other lives or in other stories than it might be where I think I can find it. So in my Christian denomination, this is a mystery. I don't know why. But uh, this means that I am open and ready to learn from anyone. From the viewpoint, obviously, of my belief uh, in solidarity with my community. But that element of generosity, I think, is what we lack most in our world um, today. We are mired into identity conflicts because identity has become defining oneself in opposition to others and becoming more and more entrenched in uh, in this polarized view of the world, of politics, of uh, of uh, gender issues, yeah. and so on and so forth. Whereas we need really to. All Christianity, I think, uh, gives us a confidence uh, that the more we come closer to God, I would say, or the more we are given these eyes that uh, are able to acknowledge God's action and presence in history and in lives, the more we become able to uh, be open to let anyone contribute to and, and work with everyone else in the upbuilding of our society today in a way which is I hope slightly more conciliatory than what we are seeing today. Yeah, and if there's a if there's not a better spot, I think, than because both in in well in Europe and in the West, there is so much non-conciliatory attitude and mindset, and so I can't think of a better call uh, than to end with that. That 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 would be a goal. That we would be more generous is a great word. Um, and I will say, as I've, I've tried to intentionally over the last few years become more generous, and it always feels so good. Even if yeah. it's small, like just tiny. It doesn't even, it's not like I need to be a millionaire and give away money, if I, I guess I could. But just time, like what you're, I mean, time like what you're doing here uh, has, yeah, either way, I'm not saying that well, so it doesn't matter. So where would you, um, where would you point people to, Luigi, to engage with you, converse with you? Obviously, the book is everywhere, fine books are sold, and I'll have links to that in the show notes, but where would you point people to for resources or to connect with you as they try to intentionally engage in a contemplative type of prayer um, and, and as, as they wrestle through that? Well, I am on Twitter, and I try on Twitter to put um, links to everything I do, the talks I give, to podcasts I, um, or the interviews I give. Mm -hmm. So if anyone Googles my name, uh, will easily find my Twitter account, and also, I have a website where I um, also put information and links um, to everything. And these are connected directly to me. So through these, anyone can write to me and I'll try and do my best to answer as quickly sure. Sure. as yeah. I can. Yeah, yes. well, good. Well, thank you for your time. Uh, and I know we've had to reschedule this and, and my dog has interrupted us a few times. Um, I don't believe 
any guest has ever actually seen the dog. I think you may be the first one. I think they've heard the dog. I see. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there we go. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, but thank you for today and for your time. I'm, I'm greatly appreciative. This is wonderful. I really loved this interview. I loved the interaction. Thank you very much, Stan. In the shadows In my wandering In the darkness There's no hiding In the cosmos You are calling In my I'm beginning to come to the realization that I can't fail at prayer. And if you've listened over the past few months, you'll hear me saying that I get so frustrated with it. I'm beginning to see glimpses and facets of a faith and an understanding of prayer that says to me, you know, Seth, you can't screw this up. I'm here with you. We're praying together. Just talk to me. And I'm finding that wholesome and I'm finding it beautiful. And I'm also finding it a bit scary, but I'm really, really excited that I believe I'm turning the corner of living in some constant threat that I don't do prayer right. I don't know that there's a wrong way to do it. I hope and I pray that your Lent, as we lead into Easter, is intentionally filled with the presence of the divine, that each of you will grow over this season in ways that you didn't think possible. Thank you so much for listening today. If you didn't, I'll ask you again. Tell your friends about the show. Rate and review the show on iTunes, but really just tell people about it. I love watching you know, different countries pop up in the, in, the, uh, in the analytics and new conversations and emails from people. I, I just the feedback is so encouraging. But more so, I'm so happy that other people besides just me get something out of the show. So tell your friends, rate and review the show on iTunes. If you get anything out of any of these episodes, consider supporting the show on Patreon. You'll find links to all that in the show notes. Special thanks to William Matthews, whose music you heard interwoven throughout this uh, conversation today. His newest release is called Cosmos. Hands down, it is one of the best albums that I've heard in some time. Uh, it's one of the few albums that I recommend that when people listen to it, they turn the lights off, close their eyes, and just listen with intention uh, multiple times. Like it, it, mm, It's... Anyway listen to that album. You'll find links to today's tracks on the Spotify playlist for the show. I'll talk with you all next week. Be blessed. I am just a fearful man. You are unafraid. So unsure of who I am. But you say that I'm beautiful.